Thanks for tuning in to the Lake Forest Church Podcast. Lake Forest is a community for people who have given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our churches in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Well, since I didn't go up earlier, they decided to make me read the scripture. Ha ha. <laughs> Pastors daughter things. Okay. Um, my, the scripture today is from Matthew 16, um, verses 21 through 27. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Thank you, Zoe. Thanks for covering that for me this morning. Well, that beautiful rain... Nice to listen to. What's the first birthday party you remember? Think for a minute. What's the first birthday party you remember? First one I remember is when I was five years old, uh, and I remember it distinctly because my mom said I could do anything I wanted for this party. Anything I wanted. So my five-year-old brain was in full speed, right? Well, bowling, putt-putt, movie, pizza party, swim party. And then it dawned on me what I really wanted to do for my birthday because I had been listening to the messages in the media and the message was loud and clear. I'd heard about a place called Burger King where I could have it my way. So I said, mom, I, I want to go to Burger King. And, and I remember ads, the ads kind of like this one. I think we have this on the screen. Uh, here, here's what was so enticing. It's, this was a Burger King ad. It said, have it your way. You have the right to have what you want exactly when you want it because on the menu of life you are today's special and tomorrow's and the day after that well you get the drift yes that's right we may be the king but you my friend are the almighty ruler and i kind of like the sound of that as a five-year-old that sounded all right to me you know i'm gonna have it my way so we went to Burger King. It was really great because uh, you, some of you remember this. Burger King has these Burger King crowns. Y'all know the crowns, right? but in my day, this was the this was before that everybody gets a trophy generation. Like when it was your birthday and you went to Burger King, they gave out one crown, and I got it. And it was great. So I'm wearing my crown, and I got all my friends around me, and I'm getting everything my way, and I'm in hog heaven until my sister, my three-year-old sister, snuck up behind me, snatched my crown, and tore it. Such was the fragility of my kingdom at Burger King. You know, I was thinking about Burger King. It's funny. We live in a world that tells us 
that the key to our happiness, the key to satisfaction in this life is to have it our way. From self-care to self-gratification to self-improvement, the message is clear. The self, the self, yourself is king. And not only does the world revolve around you, but it's supposed to revolve around you. In fact, it used to be, you remember that it used to be that cameras were meant for taking pictures of other people. Until one day someone said, you know what? We, we, could, we could put a lens on the photographer's side of the camera and they could take a picture of themselves. And the selfie was born. Uh, Google actually reported, get this, 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 this blew my mind. Google reported that in 2018, there were over 24 billion, billion with a B, 24 billion selfies uploaded to the web. And the average 20-something-year-old is on track, don't worry, they're not behind, they're on track to take over 25,000 selfies in their lifetime. See, here's what's interesting. In spite of all the messaging from Burger King to selfies to the iPhone, in spite of all of it, having it your way, having it my way, has not delivered on the promised satisfaction. Having it my way turns out to be an empty pursuit. Which is what makes the words of Jesus today so intriguing. The words that Zoe read for us. Do you remember what he said? Listen to these words. He said, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. So we've been in this series called Follow Me, and if you're not a Christian or you're thinking about becoming a Christian, you picked a great Sunday to come to church, because in this series, what what we've been looking at is, what does it actually mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of this Jesus? And if you were to pick up a Bible and just read through the Gospels, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the historical accounts of the life of Jesus. If you read through these four books, you would be shocked to see just how many times Jesus gives this invitation. Follow me, follow me, follow me. And it's not just the religious types that he's after. It was the ordinary people, the business owners, the moms, the government employees, people just like you and me. And what's really surprising when you look at these stories, what's really surprising about all these invitations is just how many people took him up on his call. Many of them, many of them left everything to follow him. Some left uh, behind fishing nets and boats. Others left businesses behind, farms and fields behind, family members behind. Everyone who decided to follow Jesus sacrificed something. But what no one anticipated, what no one saw coming, was the ultimate challenge that Jesus would give them smack in the middle of the Gospels. In Mark chapter 8, it's the turning point of the gospel. For In Luke 14 and in Matthew 16, the passage we heard today, there comes a point in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, where Jesus gives the greatest challenge he's given yet. Let me read it again to you. Whoever wants to be my disciple, literally, whoever wants to come after me must deny themselves take up their cross, and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. See, what Jesus seems to be hinting at today is that the essence of the gospel, the essence of his good news, is not a message of self-improvement, but one of self-denial. But what does he mean when he says deny ourselves and take up our cross? I mean, surely Jesus means something more than just eating fewer sweets, being a little more faithful at the gym, playing less than eight hours a day of Fortnite. Like, he's, he's got something in mind here, right? Now, Jesus is talking about something deep, something interior, something quite significant for us. And that's what I want to look at with you today. Now, to understand this simple three-part invitation, deny, take up, and follow... What I want to do is I want to walk us through the context. We want to be good students of the Bible here. We want to always read a passage within its context and understand what that has to say about informing the meaning. And so I want to go back and look beginning at verse 15 to see where this section begins, where this story begins. And that leads up to this challenge that Jesus gives. See, Jesus had been doing quite a bit of ministry. He'd been teaching and healing and And doing all kinds of things. In fact, he had just miraculously fed over 5,000 people uh, by multiplying some fish and bread. It's an incredible story. And then he reaches the town of Caesarea Philippi and he pulls aside his little band of followers. We call those his disciples. He pulls them aside and he asks them this question. Okay, guys. You've been out there with me. You've been traveling around. You've been watching. You've been listening to what the people are saying. Who do the people say that I am? And the guys are all excited. Well, some think you're Elijah, come back from the dead. Some think you're Jeremiah. No, some think you're this other prophet. And they're all over the place, right? And Jesus is like, okay, okay, that's great. Because Jesus wasn't really concerned about his reputation. He's had a different agenda. And then he looks at them and he says, okay, I get all that. But who do you say I am? That's what I'm really interested in. And you can kind of imagine the, uh, this hush that kind of just this falls over the guys, right? Like, like. Is is anybody actually going to say what we're all thinking? And then finally, Peter, who's never shy about going first, steps up and he says, Well, Jesus, we, we think you're the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And if you're familiar with this story at all, you know this is actually quite a profound statement, right? Because this word Messiah was a technical word. It literally means the anointed one, the king. And it was a powerful concept in Jesus' day. Uh, Throughout the Jewish scriptures, we know those as the Old Testament. Throughout the Jewish scriptures, the prophets had spoken over and over and over again about a coming Messiah, a coming anointed one, a coming king who would come and deliver God's people from their bondage and lead them, rule them as their king. And this can kind of be a hard concept for us, we, because we don't really live in a, in a royalty-based kind of world. We've been talking about that throughout this series. In fact, in our world, the most exciting thing royalty do is they get married, have a baby, and then they're on the cover of People magazine for five years, right? That's about it. That's... But in Jesus' day, being the king was everything. In fact, one scholar named Dale Bruner writes this. He says, to say, Jesus, you are king, was to say, Jesus, you are the answer to all our struggles. You are the answer to life itself. That's what it meant to be the Messiah. That's what it meant to be king. 
And of course, Peter was right about that, wasn't he? Though he didn't fully understand what it meant. And we see this in what happens next. Look with me at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he, the king, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke and he said, Never, Lord, never, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, what do you think Peter's motives are here? What does Peter think he's doing? Well, you might be tempted to think, Oh, isn't that sweet? Peter's worried about Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus to get hurt. No, no, that's not what's happening here. Peter is not concerned about Jesus. Peter is concerned about Peter. And he doesn't like where this whole king thing is headed. This is not what he had in mind when he said, Jesus, you are the king. Jesus, I was cool with this when you were healing people. I was cool with this when you were feeding 5,000. I was cool with you when this was going to mean the Romans are going to get their butts kicked. But I am not into this suffering, hardship, death thing that you're talking about. That's not the kind of king I want to follow. Now, I want to pause here. I didn't do this in the first service, but... um, I really think it's it, it's such a nerdy moment. I just have to share this with you. Uh, you see, there are two kinds of stories that are traced through the prophets in the Old Testament. And most of us are familiar with the first one. It's the Messiah story, right? The prophet spoke of this coming king, this deliverer, this ruler that was anticipated. And we see this throughout all the prophets, especially in Isaiah. But then there's another strain, another story known as the suffering servant. Have you heard that phrase before? The suffering servant. And it seemed to be a story about a messenger of God who endured great hardship and trouble. And what most Jews, like Peter in Jesus' day, believed is that these were, in fact, two separate people. There was the king and there was the suffering servant. And what Jesus did for the first time in the history of Judaism, Jesus was the only one to ever done it. What Jesus says is, no, in fact, the king and the suffering servant, the Messiah and the one who will give his life are, in fact, one and the same person. And it is me. And we see that this happens right here in the next point. Peter says, Jesus, no way, man. We're not doing that story. I got a better plan. And Jesus turns to Peter and says these immortal words that you have sometimes been tempted to say to your spouse, get behind me, Satan, right? Which, by the way, is not a good way to endear yourself to anyone, okay? Don't, don't try that at a dinner party. That's not going to get you any favors. He says, Peter, he says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then, and then, in the very next verse, if you want to come after me, you've got to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow. Do you see what is happening here? Do you see see what's now happening in this context? Peter has an agenda for Jesus. Peter has a wonderful plan for Jesus' life. And if Jesus would just pray the prayer and ask Peter into his heart, everything would just be fine, right? But you see, Peter is only happy to have Jesus as his king if if Jesus is willing to fit into Peter's own agenda. Peter wants a faith that is free of suffering and sacrifice. 
A faith that is all about comfort and ease. A faith where all the numbers are up and to the right. A faith that fits nicely within the agenda that Peter has for his own life. And what Jesus is doing here, he's doing so much. We need to do a whole sermon just on this get behind me sake. But what Jesus is doing here is, is he's saying, he's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, Peter, that is not how faith in me works. Following me does not mean you live by your agenda. One of the fascinating things I find in this passage is is actually the word choice that the gospel writers use for this first challenge that Jesus gives. He says, if you want to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. And the word that he uses here is really kind of a fascinating one. It literally means, well, I'll, I'll tell you the Greek word. It's aparneomai. Doesn't that sound fancy? Aparneomai. It literally means this. It is to forget oneself. Aparneomai, denying oneself, it means living with a healthy self-forgetfulness. Now, this is not the kind of self-forgetfulness where I leave my dirty clothes on the floor for my wife to clean up. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay? Hang with me on this. I think you'll, you'll find this fascinating. Here's why, here's why I like this. Because you see, a lot of people think that denying ourselves, when we hear that phrase, we instantly go to like Monty Python monks or something. We're going to beat ourselves with plaques or you know, we're going to sleep on beds of nails. You know, we're we're going to starve ourselves. We're going to never give ourselves good coffee. But you see, that's just self-torture, right? And in a weird way, in a weird way, that kind of denial is actually just another form of self-obsession. It's self-obsession in the negative. You see, Jesus is not calling us to self-obsession. He's wanting to free us from the self. And so Jesus calls us to live, to practice a kind of self-forgetfulness. Why? Why would this matter so much to Jesus? Well, I don't know for sure, but what I want to propose is, remember the thing that's most important to Jesus? He says, I want you to love God and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love God and you cannot love your neighbor if you are self-obsessed. When we are self-obsessed, there is no room for God. There's no room for the other. So Jesus says, I want you to practice a kind of self-forgetfulness where you remove yourself from the center and make room for another human being. Now, I was trying to think, okay, how do I, how do I illustrate this? Because this is a little bit of an esoteric concept. Uh, and I was thinking the best illustration I know of this is actually marriage, right? Many of us are married or have been married. You kind of know how this works. Uh, I remember when I first got married uh, 20 years ago. And uh, when I first got married, this is what I thought marriage was. Like Marriage was the guarantor of my blissful happiness, right? That was what marriage was going to be for me. And then I realized that when I got married, when I entered that covenantal relationship, that the only problem was that there was another human being whose agenda was not my blissful happiness, right? And so suddenly there, there's a conflict. And what do I do with that, right? What do I do? You see, the reason love can work, the reason marriage can work the way Paul talks about it, two people submitting to one another, is when they practice a kind of self-forgetfulness, There's room for the other in that relationship. But this isn't just something for marriage. We actually have this opportunity in every interaction of our lives. Think about some of these scenarios and see if these might apply to you. Imagine that person standing in front of you in the line at Walmart, or the Walmart, as some of y'all say. Are they, are they, which are they? Are they just an object standing between you and your agenda, you and what what you want? Or 
are they another human being with worth and dignity created in the image of God? You see, how you think about that person and how you think about yourself will determine how you interact with that person. Or how about this, business people? What about that client that you're trying to close the deal with, right? Are they just a means to your end? Another sale to help you reach your quarterly numbers? Or are they another child of God with dignity and worth created in the image of God? Students, how about this? What about that other player? You know that player on the other team that you're just waiting to bash their face in with the ball the next time you get it in your hands? You know that one? Are they simply an enemy to be crushed? Or are they another child of God with dignity and worth created in the image of God? Do you see the point I'm trying to make here, right? Our default mode is to go about this world living with the me monster in the driver's seat where it's all Aaron all the time. And I'm only able to love you. I'm only able to love someone else. I'm only able to love God when I can practice a kind of self-forgetfulness. I'm not the center of the universe I wasn't created to be. See, this is the reason why I think Jesus begins his challenge, begins his call with this. If we are going to come after him, the first step is we have to deny ourselves. It's what healthy self-forgetfulness is all about. If we want to love God and love our neighbor. Listen to how Paul puts it and then we'll move on. Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests. Ooh, that sounds like Jesus but to each of you to the interests of others. All right, belabored that point. Let's move on. Deny ourselves. Getting a feel for Jesus here. But he doesn't stop there. He moves to this next point. He says, if anyone who wants to come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. What does Jesus mean when he says take up their cross? Well, the cross is a particular kind of symbol in the scriptures. And sometimes we can get a little bit far from it. I'll sometimes hear somebody say, oh, you know, I've got this back pain and, well, it's just my cross to bear. And I'm like, okay, I understand you got back pain and that's bad. I, I really do feel for it. But your back pain is not necessarily a cross. It's at least not a cross in the way that the scriptures speak about the cross, right? The cross was a particular kind of instrument. And Jesus' audience... And the scripture writers knew exactly what they meant when they employed the cross as a symbol. This last week I got to travel to Europe as part of a graduate degree program, a doctorate I'm getting to do. And uh, it was just so awesome. I had never been, uh, but I got to go to Rome. Any of y'all been to Rome before? Any Rome hands? A couple of y'all? Okay. Uh, and we got to go to the Colosseum, right? You Just incredible. And the Colosseum was actually closed that day, but that did not stop millions of people from coming out. I called them the Brigade of Selfie Sticks, right? They're just selfie sticks just everywhere, right? ready to beat you. It was just crazy. Uh, but all these selfie folks are going around, and I'm just kind of standing there watching this. And then I got to peek through one of the arches, because we could go in. But I got to peek through, and my eye caught this one cross in the center of the Colosseum. And I have a photo. This is not my photo, but this is one I pulled off the web, just so you guys could see what I was talking about. And I was standing outside of this Colosseum, I was peering through, and in the middle, they've established this this cross as a kind of memorial to the hundreds and thousands of Christians who lost their lives because of their faith in the Colosseum. You see, the cross in Jesus' day meant one thing and one thing alone. The cross meant death. 
And when we reduce it to anything less than that, we fail to appreciate the significance of what Jesus is saying here. You see, like Peter, we can sometimes think that having faith means that things are always going to work out for me. And I pray they do, but life does not work that way. Faith does not work that way. Things don't go always the way I hoped. Jesus, uh, we think Jesus has a wonderful plan for our life, and that means being healthy, wealthy, and wise. But that is not always how our story plays. And the risk when we think this, when this is the brand of faith we adopt, the risk is that we can think that when things don't go our way, that somehow it is our fault. That when hardship comes, when trial comes, when pain comes, when suffering comes, that really the reason we're experiencing that is because we don't have enough faith. And Jesus says, my friend, that is not the faith that I have called you to. Because for Jesus, the way of Jesus has been and always will be the way of the cross. Uh, There's a famous German theologian named Diedrich Bonhoeffer who suffered much uh, during the war. uh, And he wrote a book uh, dedicated to this concept. He reminds us that that following Jesus is a deep and costly kind of discipleship. To follow Jesus means that we will have to lay something down. Following Jesus involves some kind of death in our lives. And that's what it means to take up our cross. It is the cross of Jesus that we are taking up. He has gone before us. He has died our death, but we are to follow in his way. And sometimes that following Jesus will feel like death. It might feel like death to my ego or death to my agenda, death to my reputation, death to my need to always be right, death to always having to get the credit. Death to always having to be in charge. You see, it's interesting. Luke adds the word daily when he's telling this story right here. He says, we must pick up our cross daily because he wants us to remember this is not something we do once and for all, but this is a posture, this is a way of life that we carry ever before us, ever up above us, the cross of Jesus because the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. Which brings us to our last and final point. What does it mean then to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow. And what I'm hoping you're seeing here today is rather than just understand Jesus' invitation to follow, there are some precursors before we get to that. And so when we mash all three of these things together, deny, take up, and follow, there is one word that I think encapsulates all of what Jesus is getting at here. One word that summates the whole thing. What is it? I want to suggest to you today that it is the word surrender. To deny myself Take up my cross and follow Jesus is to surrender. Now, I don't know about you, but I live in a family uh, where everybody wants to drive. Do you have one of those? You got some of those in your household? Everybody in my family wants to drive. Now, mind you, only four of the six of us have driver's license, but it doesn't stop the two without, right? Everybody in my family wants to drive. And uh, even those drivers who can't drive, uh, don't have their license yet, they still have opinions about my speed and the routes and the ways in which I go. Uh, When we're going somewhere as a family, they'll say things like this. Dad, uh, why are you driving so slow? Uh, Why are you going that way? Dad, you should have turned back there. Dad, can't you go any faster? And I have to remind them in this moment that this is my car. (laughs) These are my keys. And this is my way. And besides, I'm the one who pays the car insurance. And they can always walk if they would prefer. But they never take me up on that invitation. I don't know why, right? 
Because you see, that's what it means to be the driver, to be in the driver's seat. It means that I am in control. The one in the driver's seat is always the one in control. And this is why one of the scariest days for a parent in their life is the day that they hand over the car keys to their 16-year-old teenager. On that day, the 16-year-old moves from being in the passenger oh, I should do it this way, from being in the passenger seat to being in the driver's seat, which means what? They are in control. Now, what's the point of this illustration? Well, just this. See, I think many people find Jesus pretty handy to have in your passenger seat when you require his services. Jesus, I have a health problem and I need your help. Jesus, there's some hard stuff going on at work and I'd like it to be different. Jesus, I'm feeling anxious and I want you to give me peace of mind. Jesus, I'm feeling sad and I'd like a little hope. Jesus, I'm facing death and I want to be sure I go to heaven. And certainly Jesus cares about these things. He does. But these people are not so sure they want Jesus driving in their life. Because if Jesus is the one behind the wheel, then that means Jesus is the one in control. And they are not. See, when we're in that situation where we've put Jesus in the driver's seat, we can no longer say, I'll give to those in need when I feel generous, but I reserve the right to keep what I want now. It's his money. It's his stuff. When I let Jesus drive, I'm no longer in charge of my ego. I no longer have the right to satisfy every self-centered ambition. Now it is his life. I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore. I don't get to gossip, flatter, cajole, condemn, lie, curse, rage, cheat, intimidate, manipulate, or exaggerate anymore. Now it is not my mouth. It is his mouth. And this is what it means to surrender. I get out of the driver's seat and I hand over the keys to Jesus and I let him lead. Now, some of you will say, Aaron, this sounds kind of like just being a doormat. Is that what it means to be a doormat? No, that's back on that Monty Python vision, right? Surrender is not the same thing as passivity. Ben, you guys can go ahead and come on up. God's will for your life involves exercising creativity, making choices, taking initiatives. Surrender does not mean being a doormat. It does not mean you accept circumstances fatalistically. In fact, oftentimes, surrender will mean that you have to fight against, challenge the status quo in society. It doesn't mean that you stop using your mind or stop asking questions or stop thinking critically. When I surrender, when I do this, I do not disappear. I am not passive. I am fully engaged. In fact, I might just be more alive than I ever have been before. Because you see, it is not my life anymore. It is his. I have lost my life for his sake. And that's what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. In our self-obsessed world, and I was actually thinking about this, I was reading an article last week um, just, just about kind of this emerging generation and some of the challenges they face. And there was a survey went out. They surveyed um, the, the emerging generation said, what, what do you hope to be? What do you hope to accomplish in your life? And you know what the number one answer was? They wanted to be famous. Isn't that interesting? Famous. And then the, the researcher said, well, what do you hope to be famous for? And they said, well, I, I don't know. I just want to be famous. So compelling has the message of self, self, and self been in our society. Fame is what is promising the life satisfaction. 
And yet person after person after person who has walked that road has found just how hollow and empty that really is. And then in the midst of this selfie, self-obsessed, self-fixated world, we hear these words from Jesus 2,000 years ago that says, that's not the way to life. It's not the way to life. I want to invite you to a different way. And listen to the promise that he leaves us with in the very last verse. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. You try to grasp it, you make it all about you, my friends, it will slip through your fingers. But, but, Jesus says, here's my promise. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You know the pathway to finding your true self, finding your richest life? It's found in following Jesus, in practicing a self-forgetfulness, in keeping his cross before you and saying, Jesus, I want the agenda of my life to be your agenda, not my will, Jesus, but yours be done.